In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. As we begin this time of prayer, what should our desire be? What should be the attitude that animates this conversation that we are having with Jesus? A number of things could be said, but what I want to suggest right now is the simple, essential attitude that we want to always foster in prayer to know who Jesus is, to see him more clearly, to feel him more present, and as a consequence of that, be more secure as to who we ourselves are, to know Jesus and to know myself. It's stated very simply. I just said it very easily right there. But to really take a step forward in that is a great grace, a powerful gift. And right now, as you are beginning to pray, and I am with these words of this guided prayer, helping you turn your attention to him, Jesus, who is present here in the Blessed Sacrament, let's be courageous in seeking that grace. It's there on offer. Jesus' hand is extended. He's welcoming us. Let's grasp it. Let's take it. He wants you to understand him better. He wants you to be aware of how close he is, how interested he is in your life, that he does see you and hear you, as he said a few minutes ago. Lord, give me the courage to believe that, no matter how I might feel right now, no matter what circumstances I might find myself in, I do, in spite of my weakness and my sinfulness and my distraction, I do want to know who you are. I want to understand myself a little bit better and how much your love and your presence matter and make a difference in my life. And and to do this, I'd like us to try to follow fairly closely, elaborate one of the moments in Jesus' life where he leads Peter to do what we're aspiring to do in this prayer. He leads Peter to understand who Jesus is and, as a result, who Peter is. And I'll just read, it's, it's from St. Matthew's Gospel. Uh, I'll just read this scene, and I'd like us to circle back around and around and around the scene, allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us and each one of us, perhaps in, in very unique and individual ways, to understand how God is speaking to us through these words of Scripture. When they reached Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Peter said, Yes, he does. And when he came home, Jesus spoke of it first, asking, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tribute? 
from their children or from others. When Peter said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the children are free. However, so that we do not give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a coin. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. This is the scene. This is the passage. And Matthew introduces us into this moment by telling us that Peter is returning to Capernaum, which is his hometown. This is the village where Peter was known, where his family lived, where he was recognized. Where the fact that Peter had not only become one of Jesus' disciples, but the head of Jesus' disciples was known. We see this because the collectors of the temple tax, who would have been some Pharisees from Capernaum, or perhaps traveling around the area, or indeed even coming from Jerusalem to collect the temple tax, they went to Peter. They didn't go to Andrew or to John or to James. They went to Peter because there was this understanding that Peter was somehow the head of these disciples of Jesus. So Peter would have recognized that. He would have felt the social pressure, if you like, involved in the collectors, the temple tax coming to him because he was the leader and therefore the pressure was on him to give the right answer. And the collectors of the temple tax, and the temple tax was an annual tax that in first century Palestine was expected of all adult males as, as money and a tax for the, the maintenance and the upkeep not only of the temple as building, but of all of the priesthood and the, the, the thousands of thousands of animal sacrifices that took place there each day and all of the service that that entailed. So the collectors of this tax, which was for the temple, it wasn't the Roman taxes, it had nothing to do with the Romans or oppression. This is about, this is about right religion in Peter's eyes. What, what faithful, pious uh, Israelites would have done, uh, Peter's family, what he would have done growing up, before he started following Jesus, they come asking for that tax. Now, they put Peter on the spot. It's implicit in what Matthew says that they do this when Jesus was not present. They get Peter by himself. And we can remember from our familiarity with the Gospels what happens, for example, during the Passion, that Peter by himself, and it's true not just of Peter, it's true of the other apostles, that Peter by himself is not the strongest not the most decisive. In fact, it's true of all of us when we're separate from Jesus. So they get Peter by himself, they put him on the spot, and the assumption in their question is that Jesus actually wasn't paying the temple tax. There's a backstory here of the different ways in which Jesus' ministry is entering into conflict with the accepted ways among the Pharisees, especially of offering proper worship to God the Father. It's entering into conflict because Jesus is introducing the new and definitive way to be God's family, to act as his child. And he's doing that definitively because he is the Son. He is the revelation. We'll come to that in a moment in our consideration. But the background story is, is that there's a conflict there. Jesus hasn't yet paid the temple tax. The Pharisees detect, and they see this coming, here's another source of conflict, 
and they try to sniff it out. They call attention to it, and they put Peter on the spot to answer for it. How does Peter account for the fact that Jesus isn't paying for this tax? And so they ask him, does your master pay the tax? And then Peter says, yes, he does. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us. This is, this is, we have to presume this. We have to kind of tease this out from what's implicit in the text. But Matthew doesn't tell us whether when Peter says that, if it was true or not. Did he know that Jesus was going to pay the tax or not? What I'd like to suggest, and I think this isn't forcing the text, but actually being guided by it, what I would suggest is that Peter doesn't know. Jesus hasn't paid the tax yet, and Peter doesn't. Put on the spot, other people are listening, people in his hometown know, he's, there's this expectation, he's nervous. Peter simply doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. Now, it's, it's hard for us, I think, to appreciate the dilemma that Peter's put into here. Partly because we've never had to pay a temple tax, partly because we don't understand that in first century Palestine. There's, there's a huge distance historically. But if we don't over-exaggerate that, and right now and trying to contemplate and use our mind and our imagination to come closer to the historical events of Jesus' life, I think we can appreciate, in spite of the, the cultural distances, the pressure that Peter felt to appear compliant with the Pharisees who were asking him about, well, what is this Jesus who you follow? What is he doing? How does your following Jesus comply with the expectations we have here in your own hometown? And I think it's because of that pressure to comply. It's that uncertainty. It's that casting around for security that Peter says to the Pharisees, yes, he does. So that's what Peter says. He tells him, yes, we assume that the Pharisees walk away from that content or more or less they can't take the argumentation any further. So they leave Peter and Peter with the other disciples are following Jesus and they're going back to the house, presumably Peter's house, which is the house that they would have stayed in in Capernaum. And they're making their way back. And I think here we can imagine Peter going through a lot of interior turmoil. Because the Pharisees have just introduced a conflict in, in his being with Jesus. And that conflict is, how can he be with Jesus, follow him, identify himself with Jesus, and not enter into conflict with the people of his hometown, the people, his relations, his family, with his other expectations. In other words, people speaking badly of him. Now maybe as I'm portraying it a little bit, this can seem like a petty problem. You know? At a distance, we can kind of look at Peter and kind of say, oh, you know, there's Peter, weak Peter. Why should he care about what a couple Pharisees think and a few over-talkative neighbors? Why should that be relevant to him? You know, he should just be faithful to Jesus and follow him. And who cares what they think about him and the temple tax and all these other sort of ridiculous little scrupulous things. Be with Jesus. Be decisive. But I think we would be unfair to think in those terms. 
hypocritical even. Because so often, the, dif the difference between being a joyful, confident follower of Jesus and being a timid, fearful one, it gets played out in these kinds of conflicts. What will my family think? What will the people at work think? How is my commitment to my Catholic faith, learning more about it, being identified with it, how is that going to lead me into head-on collision with the social expectations of the people who surround me? Normally, we're not facing torture. Not normally. We never are. Death is not what it, we're being threatened with. What we're being threatened with is a scornful smile, that ironic comment, the knowledge or the fear, not even the knowledge, the fear that other people are speaking poorly about us, what they say when we're not present. And that's where Peter is. That's what's going on in Peter's mind. He's not talking about it. And as a result of that kind of interior conflict, that, flee, that fear, that, that hesitation, he withdraws and he's ruminating it as they're walking back to the house in Capernaum. And they're coming into the house and perhaps getting seated for a meal and the other apostles and disciples are entering in and coming in and Peter is withdrawn. And surely from the outside, he has that look on his face that we always get when we're withdrawn, a little bit distant, sullen, perhaps even sad. And then there's this beautiful moment. Jesus reaches out to Peter he doesn't leave him simmering in his own conflict and hesitation. He addresses him. He, he doesn't wait for Peter to talk to him later. St. Matthew tells us in his gospel, when he came home, Jesus spoke of it first. Just savor that for a moment in your prayer. The attentiveness of Jesus. He saw Peter. He noticed. He reached out to him. Do you believe that that's how Jesus sees you? Or implicitly, do you kind of feel yourself to be kind of lost in a crowd of hundreds of billions of people scattered across the globe? That Jesus has more important things to be attending to. Surely he's paying more attention to the people in Syria or to those who are suffering in various parts of the world or for someone who's going through some sort of horrible uh, tragedy or illness. And me, I'm just nervous about what people said to me at dinner last night. Surely that's not important for him. Well, whether our estimation of it is important or not, what we need to believe is that God's love and his attention has so much more capacity than anything that we could ever imagine. Jesus spoke of it first, asking, what do you think Simon, Jesus goes out to Peter so that Peter can come out of himself. And the way that Jesus does that is by getting Peter to think, to reflect. He doesn't put Peter on the spot and reprimand him. He calls Peter out of himself by getting him to think. He doesn't preach at Peter. He wants Peter to come and see for himself. Peter, what do you think?
The pedagogy of Jesus, his way of teaching, is so important for us to understand what these times of personal prayer are about. They're not about trying to stuff our heads with ideas. They are about coming out of ourselves towards the God who comes to us, so that step by step, bit by bit, with the light of the Holy Spirit giving light to our minds and strength to our will, we can come to see for ourselves and therefore be free. Free from that simmering confusion, free from that conflict and uncertainty. This is what Jesus wants. Now, Jesus does this as as the, the master teacher that he is with a very simple story. This is how he wants Peter to think for himself. He wants Peter to think through himself through a simple story and an experience. And so he tells Peter the story that we we heard from Matthew's Gospel a few moments ago. He tells him a story about a king. And he asks them, he says, does a king collect taxes from his family, from his son, or from people outside his family? And unsurprisingly, Peter says, well, from outside his family. The king does not tax his own family. That's precisely, if you like, the privilege of being a member of the king's family. You don't have that sort of uh, imposition on you because you are different. You are distinct from people who are outside the family. So Jesus draws a conclusion. Jesus said to him, then the children are free. So if we try to unspool what Jesus is leading us to see with Peter, even though it's a very simple story and it's very straightforward, it's immensely helpful for understanding Jesus in ourselves, especially try to put ourselves in Peter's place. Peter who, Jesus has not yet died and risen from the dead. The Holy Spirit has not yet come. Peter is still trying to, to come to understand this Jesus who has called him by name, who is his friend, who he loves, who he's seeking. But there's just, there's a lot of ways in which this Jesus of Nazareth is upending Peter's normal ways of thinking and acting. And this conflict with the temple tax is one of them. It's another point of, of uh, disjunction. The way that Peter used to live, the way he used to think, the ways in which he used to operate are being challenged. And for you and me, as we follow Jesus, as we grow, and as we experience things in life, we're bumping into those things as well. How does my following Jesus, how does my being with him and in him, challenge me to see and to react in a new way? That's what's happening with Peter. And that's why it's so illustrative for us. And the conflict for Peter is, what should I do? What should Jesus do? Should he pay or should he not? Should I have said what I did or should I not? He's thinking about what was the right thing to do. But Jesus doesn't go immediately to the question of what's the right thing to do. He goes to the question of identity. Identity. It's very important in our Christian life that we, when we think about what should I do, that we come first and foremost to the question, who am I? And what we're considering right now in our prayer is that the answer to that question, who am I, is found by having a greater understanding of who is God, who is Jesus. What we said at the very beginning of our prayer, who is Jesus? 
and who am I? That's how we could ever have any true light and freely uh, uh, confront what we ought to do in particular circumstances. What should I do? What is expected of me? To answer that question, we always need to come back to what is my identity? Who am I? Now, to answer that question, this is why Jesus tells Peter this very simple, very, very simple parable about the king. And he doesn't tax his children, but he taxes outsiders. Now, of course, what's important to realize is that the tax that we're talking about is the temple tax. And obviously, the king here is Yahweh himself. The temple was his throne from which he rules over the entire universe. And just as uh, Jesus has suggested to Peter that he, Jesus, is more important than the temple. And in this, what Jesus is implying, he's saying, look, Peter, I am unique among all human beings. Yahweh is my father. God is my father. Everyone else in all of Israel is paying taxes to the king of this temple. But would it make sense for the son of that king to pay tax? And Peter just said, well, no, it wouldn't. And then Jesus says, well, then I'm free from paying it, aren't I, Peter? Now, for Peter, this is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing for not just for Peter, it would be mind-blowing for anyone. In fact, it's so mind-blowing, it's what's going to lead to Jesus being rejected and killed. His claim to have this absolutely singular and unique relationship with God, making himself equal to God as his son. And one of the ways that this, the, this is being alluded to, this is coming out, is that He's bringing it down to the consequences. Since I am the son, I shouldn't have to pay the temple tax. Right? So that the particular instance of paying or not paying the temple tax, from that, Jesus is saying, well, should I or should I not pay the temple tax? And Jesus is saying, well, who am I? I'm the son. Well, then I shouldn't have to pay it. But that mind-blowing reality <laughs> is something right now that in this moment in his ministry, he just wants to introduce he wants to open a horizon for Peter. That he knows Peter is not going to fully understand it. But like so many of the other things, like when he, he prophesies his own rejection and crucifixion, when he speaks the resurrection, we're told explicitly that Peter and the other apostles don't understand it. But after the resurrection, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit acts on their memory and recalls those things that Jesus says. And then guided by the Holy Spirit, they understand it truly. It's, it's in retrospect that, that they come to that understanding, guided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So right now, Jesus is just saying, look, this, he gives Peter this glimpse. Peter is left with that, but Jesus pulls back a little bit. He says, however, so that we do not give offense to them. In other words, I'm not going to drive this point too hard. I'm not going to insist on this right that I have as the son to not pay the temple tax. Because Jesus doesn't say it, but implicit here is the idea that his hour has not yet come. 
However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Now, it's kind of a, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a very striking little miracle. If you like, it's a miracle of providence. Jesus is, in other words, is showing, not just saying, what it means that he is the Son. He's indicating to Peter, look, Peter, God the Father takes care of me. So go out to the sea and just cast a hook. Don't spend your whole day fishing. Don't fish. The first one that comes up will give us what we need. Remember the story that Jesus tells his disciples about trying to convince them of how his father looks after them and cares for them, that all the hairs of their head are counted. That just as the birds of the air and, and, and the, the, the wild flowers and all of that grows and God takes care of all of it, so too he takes care of them. Well, Jesus invites Peter to an experience of that in kind of a, I don't know, a unique way. Go and cast a hook, bring up a fish, and in that fish you'll find a coin that will pay the temple tax for the two of us. And in that very simple gesture, what Jesus has just done is he's invited Peter to understand himself as Jesus understands himself. That unique relationship with God the Father to that little gesture of paying the temple tax, Peter is, excuse me, Jesus is, is pointing Peter in the direction of saying, Peter, the sonship that I experience, that intimate union with God the Father, that's what I want you to participate in as well. I've come to give that to you. So leave behind that conflict in your mind, that, that insecurity, that being torn between what do other people think and what is Jesus expecting of me and which is right and which is the other and give yourself over to the security and the confidence that no matter what is happening on the service, no matter the confusion and the conflicts around you, God the Father will give you what you need. I want you to have security and confidence in the world. Just as the Father provides for me, so he will provide for you. Let's just consider right now that Jesus is calling me to the same discovery. Very different circumstances. None of us is grappling with what we should do about a temple tax. We have other issues. We have other problems. We have other things that arise that, that make us doubt, that make us seek reassurance, that make us question and hesitate about whether we are loved by God, whether I actually love him back, whether my life has meaning or it's going in the right direction or I'm doing what I should be doing. In all of this, Jesus wants us to step back and rediscover that the king is my father. And since he is my father, as Jesus says, therefore the children are free. So let's be free. And it may be, just as it was for Jesus and Peter, that their external behavior was the same as everyone else in Jerusalem and in Nazareth and in Capernaum and Galilee and all of it. It was just the same on the outside. They paid the temple tax. But on the inside, there was a transformation. There was a freedom because they knew themselves to be the son of the king. 
Now, right after this, this scene, and, and it's, we don't need to argue about whether this was the historical sequence or not, sequence or not, but right after narrating the scene, Matthew in his gospel places another moment, is, is, is a lot to consider here, and we don't have time for it, but he places another moment that does shed light, important light, on this scene with the temple tax. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Again, that anxiety about identity. Who is important? Am I better than him? How do I rank? Where am I before God? Am I great? Am I mediocre? Am I irrelevant? That anxiety. Jesus called the child whom he put among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus puts a child in front of them. I think it's important when we pray about that scene. Jesus wanted them to look at a child, visually see this child as they heard his words. He wanted them to see in this child what humility meant. And we could say so much and we don't have time for it now, but he wanted them to understand that the humility of the child is to accept at the deepest possible level that I am the child. In other words, my relationship with the Father derives from who I am, not from what I do. I can reject that relationship with what I do, just as I can strengthen it and make it grow. But I do all of that as the child, as someone who can rightfully presume that he has a unique relationship with the Father. A child just intuitively accepts that. It's, it's just spontaneous. That of course my father is going to pay special attention to me and I have a claim on his attention. That's the transformation that we need to undergo. Because what our sinfulness and what our pride leads us to is a suspicion of that. And one of the ways, and just to try to land this consideration that we've been making here into something a little bit more that maybe we could work on in the upcoming days, one of the ways that we can try to live this humility and live this faith and learn the lesson that Peter was trying to be taught, was trying to learn through Jesus' story, is by being a lot quicker in the way in which in the, that we ask for forgiveness. For example, I lose my temper. I get upset, I, uh, and, and basically just I show myself through my actions or through my words to be a lot of things that I wish, and, wish I wasn't. And when that happens, we get frustrated with ourselves, I get annoyed, I'm, I'm upset. And a lot of times it can happen that we kind of get in a funk. We sulk, we could say. We withdraw. We feel ourselves to be false even. Who am I kidding, we can say with trying to pray, with trying to live a committed Christian life, with really trying to, to love and to draw other people closer to God. So that happens, and, and maybe it happens a lot more than we are willing to, to realize and to recognize. But let's be humble, like children. Children who are confident that my Father gives me exactly what I need, when I need it. Just like that fish that was there to give, not you know, 500,000 shekels, but exactly the coin that was needed to pay for Jesus 
and to pay for Peter. Jesus gives us precisely the grace that we need when we need it, so that in that moment when I've lost my cool, when I've screamed when I should have smiled, when I've made the biting, ironic comment when I should have kept my mouth shut, precisely in that moment, without having to spend two days sulking and ruminating over it, I can simply ask for forgiveness and cheerfully begin again. And I can cheerfully begin again, not because I look at my record and say, aha, look how well I've performed, so I'm pretty confident that God is pleased with me. Because precisely that's what I can't do. But what I can do is reach back to that identity. Even though I'm a disaster, he's my father, and I am his child. And that is what I can reclaim and begin again. That's humility, you see, because precisely we know that we don't deserve it. It is a gift. It's something that we can respond to. Lord, we ask you as we end this time of prayer, give us that humility. Give us the humility to receive, to claim, to act on the basis of who we are as your children. Children of the Father, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Help me individually to understand that and to realize that it's a process. I have to practice it. And perhaps one of the most effective ways, not the most, but a very effective way that we can practice that is being quicker, more spontaneous, more cheerful in the ways in which I ask for forgiveness. To not kind of put myself in the timeout corner, you know, where I have to be, you know, I have to be kind of in a bad form for three or four days and then I'll get back, I'll get back to my, my Christian striving. No, no, no. Right away, instantly. It's a wonderful way to exercise this humility and perhaps even more importantly, a wonderful way to exercise this freedom. The freedom that Jesus wants us to have. He wants us to be free, not just of the temple tax, but of the different ways in which our pride and our sinfulness tries to tax us and convince us that we are outsiders, that we're not members of God's family. A family that is taken care of and nurtured as well by our mother Mary who's always at our side nudging us whispering in our ear begin again ask for forgiveness don't give yourself so much importance trust in my son and take the step forward now the grace that is offered to you now forgetting about the past and being very confident about the future